0: And while Mike was reading it, Yusuf turned to me and he said, are you going to preach this psalm verse by verse? <laughs> and I said, yes, but I promised him that at 4.30, when we're halfway through, we'll stop for an early early supper. Um, it seems uh, uh, up front a uh, bit of a depressing book to end on, doesn't it? When I was reading, I mean, a, a psalm to end the book on, book four, but... When I was reading the psalm, I, I thought of a man at our church in Spokane. He was a, he was a very uh, gifted medical doctor. And uh, if that wasn't enough, he was also a concert-level pianist. He was just kind of one of those guys who was a cut above. And I, I never really got to know him that well because about the time they came or shortly before, he had been uh, diagnosed with the onset of dementia. And so, uh, you know, well, there you have it. Um, and I, I did his memorial, and I remember at his memorial they had, a, as is often the case, they had a whole set of, of pictures. It was before the digital age, and so they were pictures that were printed out, and, and, and many of them in the borders. He had written notations of, of who the people were and what the events were and when they happened because he knew being a doctor, what was going to happen to him. And as as his mind slowly descended, that he wouldn't remember these things. And perhaps these notations, even for a brief period of time, would bring back cherished memories and people that he could enjoy once again on his descent into a loss of memory. And that dual idea of descent... And loss of memory, I think, is what made me think of, of him when I thought of this psalm because this psalm is, as I've called it, a dreadful descent. It starts out with the form of a praise song, doesn't it? Praise the Lord, give thanks. There's a beatitude in, in verse 3. Blessed are they who observe justice. It sounds really good. And then it starts going down. They don't remember his steadfast love in verse 7. In verse 12, they believe and they sing his praise, and that's really the dropping-off point. And then it's forgetting and disobeying and despising, yoking themselves to idols, verse uh, 28 there. They drop down to the point where they're sacrificing their own children to the idols of Canaan. And then you see in verse 43... Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious. They were brought low through their iniquity. That's the descent idea. It's been this downward trend throughout the psalm. But but that word there, brought low, is, is a, a, a word. Its form is never used anywhere else in the Old Testament. But it's the word for sinking. They have sunk as low as they could go in verse 43. And verse 44 brings us back to some hope, but... But the theme of the psalm is this dreadful descent of disobedience and forgetting. In spite of that, I know, I know it's been uplifting so far, right? You're glad you came. In spite of that, I don't think that this psalm is actually intended to be depressing. Because in his providence, and, and there's a number of things I want to point out, Psalm 106 is always to be read with Psalm 105. They're they're put together, and they complement each other in in vastly contrasting ways. Psalm 105, if you flip back over to that, starts off with a significant um, statement on Abraham. Starts off, of course, giving thanks and and praising God. And then a significant statement on Abraham and the promises that God made to Abraham, which if you've been in... in, uh, in our, the biblical theology that we've done this summer, you know that's kind of the, the underlying uh, theme of the, of the Bible. And then Psalm 105 is this wonderful presentation of God's faithful treating of His people in the same history period as Psalm 106. It goes from the exodus to the land, and that's the same that Psalm 106 does. But but it's so rosy and wonderful in Psalm 105. And I don't think I would use those words to characterize Psalm 106. In fact, look in Psalm 105, verse 40. They asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. That sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? But now look over at 106, verse 13. They forgot his works they didn 't wait for his counsel. they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, which was quail, and sent a wasting disease among them. Those sound like two completely different stories don 't they? It sounds to me like um, in, in in our times the the instagram story you 've seen that you know it 's the the instagram 's picture comes from the one corner of the house that's tidy and clean, and you take the picture there, the rest of the house is a disaster, but it looks really good on the Instagram one, right? Psalm 105 seems like the Instagram picture. I remember a few years ago, there was one that came around, I found it very funny, where a girl had dressed up in her cute little exercise outfit and was, was taking a hike in nature except that her sister had taken a picture from the house that she was actually posed in just the right spot in the backyard where there were trees that made it look like she was out in nature and she was just standing in the backyard. It's Instagram versus reality. Except they're both reality. Psalm 105 describes the faithfulness of God that he is working these things out and there isn't a hint of all the trouble if we just had Psalm 105, and I was to speak for myself here, I would get a bit cynical. And I would say, that's, that's great, but that's not my life. My life is full of, of sorrow and heartache and pain, and this seems a bit rosy. But if all I had was Psalm 106, without Psalm 105, I might be tempted to doubt and to despair. At what point is God going to stop remembering his covenant? Because of my sin and because of our sin. But but combined, I don't think we're supposed to be depressed by Psalm 106. I I think we're supposed to realize this is a prayer. That the form of Psalm 106 is that this poet is interceding for his people. And the reason that he knows that it will be true is because of the faithful God who's presented in Psalm 105. That's his story. That's the way he does things. And his faithfulness in 105 in blessing his people is matched by his faithfulness in 106 because if you read the law, you realize, that you, you will see that God says, if you act this way, I will bless you. If you act this way, I will punish you. And so Psalm 106 is certainly about God's faithfulness because he's doing exactly what he said he would do. And in every prayer in the Old Testament that you can see, there's the truth that comes out that if his people will turn back to him and repent, he will restore them. And I think that's what you have in Psalm 106. It's not a hopeless, depressing thing. You have a confession and a casting back upon the grace of God that he will remember his covenant and he will restore his people. So it's really not quite as bad as what it first comes across. It's a prayer. You can see after the the opening of verses 1 through 3, he says, Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. When you do, come and restore them and save them and and bring them back. Include me. Let me be part of that. And then in verses 6 through 46, you have a recounting of a third-person recounting, actually. So I think he's a bit, he's praying and preaching at the same time. This is what we have done. And then the petition comes in verse 47. Save us, O Lord. Gather us back from the nations so that we can bless you. And so you can see there, there is an intimate connection between Psalm 105 and Psalm 106 the faithfulness of God in blessing, the faithfulness of God in punishment and judgment brought together with a repentance and a request for God to restore his people. I think that it is an exilic intercessory prayer. You can see there uh, on the slide, verse 46 is key. The uh, the only place where uh, God is said to use pity or compassion on his people, is the time of the exile. So the other things don't have that category. And so this is a, a big clue that as he shows compassion, that we're talking about the exile when Jerusalem was destroyed and the, and the people were taken off into captivity in Babylon and Assyria and all those places. And so uh, Babylon in particular. But, um, but that is a sign that we're talking about uh, exile, you can also see that uh, the request of verse 47, gather us from the nations. If you turn to the first psalm of the next book, book 5, in verse 3, he praises him because he's gathered them in from the lands. So God has restored and brought back his people. Um, and then um, finally... Both Psalm 106 and both Psalm 105 have a distinctiveness. I called it oddity there in that last. The history is all messed up. Let me just put it bluntly. The, the, The stories are out of order, way out of order. In Psalm 105, he talks about the plagues in Egypt, and they're way out of order. He starts off with plague number nine. And so the psalmist is not recounting history the way that we as Americans, it has to be covered this day before you this day. He's actually organizing it theologically to make a point. And the center point in Psalm 106 is in verses 24 through 27. They despised the pleasant land. They murmured in their tents. This is the episode of the spies in Numbers uh, 13 and 14 where Moses sent spies into the land and they came back and they said, oh no, they're giants, we can't do this. And, um, and God says, well, if you're not going to trust me, you're going to die in the wilderness. Oops. And there's the, there's the layout Uh, Of course, that symmetry idea that's so common. I was just telling Matt that I, as I was going through my notes this morning, I realized with some chagrin that the third line down, the sins coming out, is not a title that works because the sin listed in verses 16 through 18, which is the rebellion of Korah, uh, is one of the sins after that midpoint. So... I hate to inform you guys, but my, my structure there is not inspired. <laughs> I'm going to have to go back and do some more thinking about it, which I'm really intrigued to do. But this, this structure actually comes from John Steck and his notes in the NIV Study Bible, which I commend highly to you. I would put it up as one of the best three commentaries on Psalms that there is, and you get a, all the other study notes out of it. And he based it on the lines, the number of lines of Hebrew are in symmetry. So the structure's right, but my titles are going to need some reworking. But that being the case, that symmetry there tells two things. First off, we're going to hear about the same sins in the first part that we're going to hear about the second part. So we're actually going to be able to learn from the psalmist what the big sins were that he thinks, because he repeats them. He, He tells us in the first half and then repeats them in the second half. And second, it points the center point being the rebellion where they simply reject the promises of God, what he promised to Abraham we don't believe he's going to do, and, and he has them die in the wilderness. Which I think makes verse 27 then the nail in the coffin that this is a poem that was composed during the time of the exile, because it says he'll make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering among the lands. That actually wasn't part of the story in Numbers 13 and 14. God said, you're going to die in the wilderness, but he never said anything about their offspring. I think the writer is saying here, what they did in the wilderness in their faithful rejection of God is what we have done that has brought on the exile. And so there's this, this point is that he has theologically um, put all of this together with an emphasis on mediation that I want us to note with Moses and with Phinehas to say something very specific about the sins of Israel and, and then petition the God of Israel to gather them back so that they might give thanks and glory in his name. The request of uh, verse 47. So that's kind of the structure of Psalm 106 and how it all uh, fits together, notwithstanding the fact that I've got to go back and and do a little more work. Um, but I want us to, to now go through it, not verse by verse, but to kind of go through and and, and get the... The feel of this psalm, and the first thing that I would like for us to note is the reality of repentance. If you see there in verse 4 and 5, the writer is very concerned in his prayer that he be included with God's people, that he is one of them when God comes to save his people. That's what he is on about, saving his people. And the writer says, let me be one of them. Include me when you show favor. Help me when you save them so that I can look upon prosperity, that I can rejoice. And he is interested in being included with God's people. And then in verse 6, he does something pretty stunning. Look at that first line. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. He includes himself with his ancestors. A solidarity with them that, that he is part of them in this. And I think that there is a A tremendous truth here, but we have to pause for just a second to uh, kind of make sure it's clear in our heads because we live in an age or in a time where uh, we are told that we need to assume the responsibility for sins of the past. And so there's a a discussion, a a national discussion going around about reparations uh, in terms of race and responsibility and things like that. And uh, I don't know if you have dug down past some of the soundbite stuff, but it's a fascinating discussion. And some of the insights and, and uh, statistics are, are amazing on it. And I don't know where you stand on it, and I'm not going to make any statements about it. The reason I point it out is I want you to know for sure that is not what this poet is talking about. He's not talking about historical solidarity. Rather, he is talking about theological solidarity. And that's what I meant when he says in verse 27, he just simply assumes that the sins that, that they have done that have caused the exile are the same sins that caused his fathers to fall in the wilderness. This is a very biblical idea. It shows up in things like all we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All we, like sheep, have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. There's none righteous, all have become corrupt. That's the psalmist. And then that's repeated also by Paul in Romans 3. It's an idea, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can understand it? The notion that we are in this together is the reality of repentance. I cannot say, yeah, but I wouldn't do that. Yeah, but I'm not that bad. The psalmist comes before God and he simply says, this is the boat that I'm in with my forefathers. We are sinners. We stand before you vis-a-vis, God, as sinners. And I have no excuses. You are treating us this way because of your faithfulness. You have said that you would because of who we are. I am with them, and I'm petitioning you now interceding to be different. This is how some of the great uh, prayers of the Old Testament start. Let me read just a few verses from Nehemiah's prayer in, in Nehemiah 1. It says that he heard the words, which is that Jerusalem was, a, was destroyed and still a mess after all the years that had been destroyed. And he sat down and wept and mourned for days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I am, I'm ashamed to say I do not respond with that level of intensity. And then he says, Lord God of heaven who keeps covenant and steadfast love. We've mentioned that we're seeing that in Psalm 106 too. Let your ears be attentive, your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. And dropping down to the very end of verse 6, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word if you command that you commanded your servant. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. There you have it. That's really what I'm suggesting is happening in Psalm 106. It's a similar prayer to this. We grieve over what we have done. We have ignored, as we're going to talk about in a minute, and now we're confessing it. We have been unfaithful. Restore us from the uttermost parts of the heaven. Daniel prays a very similar prayer in Daniel 9. Let me read a few verses of that. Um, as he does the same thing. He turns his face to the Lord God prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, this visceral confession and response and he prayed oh lord the great and awesome god who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules we haven't listened to your servants the prophets to you belongs righteousness to us open shame and then he goes on to pray about restoration too so i think that's what's going on here the prayer of a of a man who is realizing his solidarity with his people who intercedes for his people that god will bless them that he will follow through on the blessings Of Abraham to Abraham of the promises to Abraham. Let me try that again. They'll follow through on fulfilling the promises that he made to Abraham of blessing and relationship that are highlighted in Psalm 105, and I think are the basis, certainly, of the land, the land promise here in the in the very center of the book. So, what is it then that they did that was so wrong? What is it that the psalmist has to confess on behalf of his people and intercede for them. And I think that there are uh, four sins that I'd like to highlight out of this. The first one is that they forget or don't remember. And this happens quite a bit in this psalm. But we have to step back and say that when we talk about forgetting and remembering, it's not the same as when they do it in the Bible. Um, it's for us. It's it's usually a, a lapse of conscious memory. Something you know. Oh, you told me your name, but I don't I don't remember it. Sorry. And that doesn't work so well with an all knowing God. In verse forty five. He remembered his covenant. Well, an omniscient God is not going to have a lapse of conscious memory. So it must mean something else. But I think. We have to be careful. Sometimes we feel like, like in Exodus 2, where he remembers his covenant while his people are in, in captivity, that all, he's, I don't know, he's up there putting a ship together in a bottle. And all of a sudden he hears the groanings. What is that? Oh, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> I left the Israelites. No, it's not that. Remembering in Scripture or in the Old Testament in particular, remembering is the act of, of having something govern the way you behave. To forget is not to have it slip out of your mind, it's to ignore it. There are a lot of memorials in the, uh, in the law and in the early books of the, of the Bible. Let me point out just one. As the Israelites came out of, um, or came across the Jordan, they each took a stone, a big stone, and they made a giant pile of them. Twelve big stones. And it says there in Joshua that when your child comes and asks you, what are those stones? You tell them, this is what happened. This is what God did for us. And then there's this little line at the end, so that you may fear him forever. The memory is not just to go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. George Washington brought us people across the Delaware. What difference does that make? No, that memory of those stones wasn't like George Washington crossing. It was a memory that said you live a certain way because what God did that has those stones there. There's an intentionality of memory when we talk about remembering and forgetting in the Bible and in this psalm. It's not just something that we have to remember. It's not as though in this one of the last sections that the people in Canaan are sitting around their table and the father says to the wife, hey, do you remember how I'm supposed to act? He goes, no, honey, I don't. And he goes, well, I guess I'll go sacrifice Junior to Moloch today then. It's not that they forgot. It's that they chose to ignore and so this is the the first sin in this, and everything else is a knock-on after it, because they choose to not remember and keep in the forefront what God has said. And my wife, Holly, is a great cook. I'm sure you can tell that just by looking at me. And, and we had a big family, and so I remember her having the stove, and there would be pans, pots all over it with stuff in it, and she would be having her, this was her sovereign domain, and everything was organized. And, and at certain points you would tell myself or some of the kids to, to do something. But, but at, at one point, one pot would come from the back burner and come up to the front, and this one would go back. None of them were being neglected, but this one needed attention right now. And I think that's the example in my mind of God remembering. Nothing is being neglected, but at certain points... Something comes to the front burner, and that's what's going to be dealt with right then. And that's what I think happens in Exodus. They were been in captivity, and God remembers his promises to Abraham. It comes to the front burner, and Pharaoh's doom has arrived. For us, it's somewhat imitation of that, except we don't have a five-, six-burner stove. We have a camp stove. There is only one thing on the front burner, and that is to remember his laws, to follow him, to obey him, to love him, all the things that he tells us to do. Those memorials were for them to keep what he had told them on the front burner of their lives. That's why Deuteronomy 6, write it on your foreheads, on your arms, put it on your doorposts. Don't ever let it get out of your memory or your sight. And they didn't do it look at verse 7 they didn't remember the abundance of your steadfast love verse 12 they did believe but verse 13 they soon forgot verse 21 they forgot God their Savior verse 24 they'd had no faith in his promise verse 25 they did not obey the voice of the Lord And verse 34, um, they did not do as the Lord commanded them. The things that he had told them, it's a combination of them forgetting, slash ignoring, and disobeying. And the other sins come from that. I think for us, we need to be careful. If I can speak as an older guy... One of the things that I fear is that as, as Christians, and I'm, I'm not speaking of any of you, so don't get but in general, we have become less um, knowledgeable about our Bibles, and Christians don't know God's Word, generally speaking, and I don't think that there's a whole lot of difference between forgetting, ignoring, and not knowing, the end result is we don't what he's asked us to do and so I think this was a great this one is a great reminder that whether it is um, a bad intent or just a benign intent we need to know his word so that we can remember in the sense of following what he has told us to do the next sin follows from this a lack of trust in provision and I want to freely admit right up front, that is not a precise title, but it's a PowerPoint slide and you only have so much room. What actually was happening is God's providing, but they, what they don't trust is that they don't trust that he's giving them what they need. They want more. And that's why I think that, that we can embrace this and say in solidarity, yes, we have sinned with these guys because, man, that is epidemic to all humanity. We want what we want, not necessarily what God wants to have us and what he's dealing with in our lives. They wanted quail. But if you go back and read the story in Numbers 11, it's not just Quail. Remember, we want quail because it was meat that we had in Egypt. We remember the fish and the leeks and the melons and the onions and the garlic of Egypt. What you're giving us, this manna. Even though in Deuteronomy, Moses tells us that God was giving them manna to test what was in their hearts so that he would know what their commitment was to him. They didn't want the manna. They wanted what the godless Wicked ruler of Egypt had to give them. That's why a plague came along with it. You want? You want this? You sure you want this? Because it has things that accompany it that you might not like. But he gave them what they asked. They wanted more. Madison Avenue used to be the center of advertising. I think with the internet, it's kind of uh, dispersed its its you know centralization, but. But we used to speak of Madison Avenue as the place of of advertising. And they they thrive on this idea. More. More power. More beauty. More success. More impact. More significance. More money. More leisure. More self-worth. Whatever we can do to create in people the desire for something more. There'll be an endless supply of customers. And that's what we're seeing here on The Theological. We don't want what God is doing in our lives. We want something different. And I want to be careful here. I'm not saying, I don't want you to be hearing that I'm saying, well, just you know, be kind of, what was the old song? Que sara sara whatever will be, will be. I don't think that this militates against being industrious and, and being hardworking. But I think if you're, re- if you're trying to remember what God has said, it's going to be clear the Spirit is going to bring into your lives when you've crossed the line of knowing that what you want is more than what God is dealing with you for. That You want something different, that what you want is not what He wants for you. You want what you want for you. And it's always more and better something that we want. But twice in this psalm, the first is this wasting disease. God is telling us, what you want is not good for you. What I want is good for you. Even though, admittedly, it can be very difficult and unpleasant at times. I think the writer of Hebrews tells us that, doesn't it? No one enjoys discipline, but it brings The peaceful fruit of harvest, of righteousness. So they don't trust what God has given because they have decided that they're not going to remember what He has said. And that moves into immediate gratification. Now, there's a lot of things that I could say about idolatry, and I've chosen um, just in these few moments, it's immediate gratification. If they're after something different than what God has told them to be after, they're going to find some way to pursue it. And that's where the idolatry comes in. They're going to be looking for the security and for the the provision that they don't feel that God is going to provide for them. And that was the calf at Horeb, the golden calf. Moses has been up on the mountain for 40 days. We're not sure he's ever coming back. We need to have something to follow. And lo and behold, apparently Aaron just dumped a bunch of gold into the fire and out popped a golden calf. At least that was his story. They exchanged glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They pursued an idol that they thought could give them something because they were forgetting not remembering what they were supposed to remember. Not desiring what they were supposed to desire. And this psalm is clear that that is not the way to go. In, in verse 28 you see the eight sacrifices offered to the dead. Um, the NIV translates that and, I, and they, they kind of interpret it for us and I think they've hit it right on. It's offered to, God, to lifeless gods. Lifeless idols. So I don't think that you've got some You know, idolatry and worship of the dead or whatever. I think he's speaking, as the Old Testament so often does, lifeless gods. But it's even worse than that. Look it down in verse 37. They sacrifice their sons and their daughters to the demons. That behind this idolatry is is the dark side, the evil one and his minions. And so when God says to them, I'll give you what you ask, but it isn't going to... be what you want, we get a glimpse behind the curtain, don't we? When we pursue what the evil one has, when we pursue what the world, apart from God, wants to give us, we're actually dabbling in something very powerful because we're not following what God has for us. As we pursue whatever our proclivities are with a passion, and a service to them to meet our needs. I think we can all resonate with this, can't we? We're tempted to live our lives this way, to pursue our desires, and to not remember what God has told them. Instead of getting rid of the idols as the Lord commanded them, verse 34, they mixed with the nations and ended up sacrificing their own children to them. And we might pretend that we're more sophisticated, but I'm afraid that I've just spent too many hours with too many people whose their values and their lives have destroyed the lives of their children because of what they wanted. So we might find a kinder, gentler way to do it. But self-centered parents who destroy the lives of their children is not a new thing. It happened then, it happens now. So then how do they end up? Well, they end up just like the nations. They mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. In verse 35, you see there. There's no distinction. They have pursued the things that were in the world that attracted them, the securities and the leisure and the good foods and and the not having to have the sin removed from them by God's careful, loving discipline. And they have ended up looking like the world around them. And that's one of the main complaints that I hear of the church from many people today. We don't look any different. Look at the the tragedy of verse 40. The anger of the Lord was kindled against His people. He abhorred His heritage. His people did not look anything like Him. Be holy as I am holy, he said in Leviticus, and they had done nothing. Instead, they forgot what he said. They chose to pursue more and better things that they wanted. They turned to whatever idols, whether it was in Canaan or in Moab or Midian, whoever could supply what they wanted, they would turn to them to provide it, and they ended up looking nothing like their king. And apparently, in verse 43, this happened again and again and again. Rebellious. Until they had hit the low point, they had sunk down to the bottom and they were dispersed throughout the nations. Jerusalem, the city of God's name, was destroyed. And the horror of child sacrifice. I think that the writer goes there because we need to see pursuing something other than God's will might seem good at the outset, but in the end, it's death. These are the sins that they engaged in and then he petitions God. Gather us. Save us. Remember us. And with that I'd like to go my last point, which is the power of intercession. It's a theme, or motif rather, in this psalm. The psalmist himself is doing it. In verses 16 through 18, that's the issue behind the rebellion of Korah, who interestingly is not named here. The other two accompanying guys are. But they were rejecting the priesthood of Moses and Aaron. Aaron in particular, Moses was, well, Moses was Moses. But they were saying, why are you priests? Any of us can be priests. It doesn't matter what God has designated. We can do it ourselves. It's not his prerogative. And so they've rejected the means by which they are allowed to have a a relationship with God, which is God's priesthood. Moses then provides mediation in verse 23, the golden calf, and God says, I am so upset by this, I'm going to destroy them. And Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach and turned his wrath away, absorbed the wrath of this rebellion and said, you need, interestingly, you need to fulfill your promises to Abraham. And then there's Phinehas who stood up and intervened in the sin and the immorality of Bala Peor and killed a couple, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was a priest who administered in this psalm of God's justice, administered justice. And so you have a real emphasis on intercession and interceding in Psalm 107, and I want to suggest to you, That as we as Christians read this, that this psalm is what Jesus did. That his intercession matches this. That in verse 6, the sinless one, Hebrews tells us that he never sinned, and yet he took upon himself our sin, and he became one of us in an extraordinary way. Before the Father in that moment of transaction, He says, We have sinned. Never having sinned Himself, the scriptures tell us that same verse in Isaiah 53 that God has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. That in 2 Corinthians, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That at the baptism, John says, I'm baptizing you. You should baptize me. And Jesus says, Actually, we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. He takes on that role as being the one who never having sin became sin. And he stands before God as Moses stood in the breach and said, Take me. I will be the representative, I will turn away the wrath. And God's punishment fell upon him. And having risen then, he does what Phineas does. He becomes the, the priest who administers the justice of God. He's the judge of the living and the dead. And so Jesus actually has, has taken all of this mediation, and he has done it so that when he cries out, Save us, Lord our God, God can say, Yes, you are the one through whom I can fulfill my promises. You have done what I have asked. You have not ever forgotten. You have never failed in these ways. You have taken the sin upon and paid for it, and having risen again, vindicated. God has raised him above every name, Philippians 2. He took on, he left the form of God, took on the form of a servant, He left his position and his glory, took on the form of a servant, identified with us, and then paid for our sins. So that the mediator here can say, bring us together, and the poet wants to be a part of that. That what Jesus the great priest has done has become the one mediator. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. The one way of hope, the one way that God is going to fulfill His promises, His faithfulness that we see in Psalm 105 that He's made to Abraham and He's carried through to His people, it is going to be through Jesus who is going to counteract all of this sin through His mediation. And it's not just going to be so that we can have our sins forgiven and receive salvation. That's For this psalm, I think that's actually just walking through the door. But once we get into the room, we find out that the task is to be his heritage. That this mediator, who is able to save his people through his mediation, is also able to break the cycles of those sins. That he is able to make us into a heritage that is pleasing to the Lord instead of abhorrent to Him. And so it is a full-orbed psalm, not of depression, but of focusing us in on these mediators, these pictures that point to the One who could do all of it, who could help us shun these sins of turning away and forgetting and, and all that that leads to so that we can be saved, children of God, who are a pleasing heritage to Him, His chosen ones, full of thanks, full of praise, full of glory, as the psalm ends. So it ends up pretty good. It ends up a stunning tribute to our King Jesus, who did it for us who did this psalm. Let's pray together. Father may we ponder through the psalm before our closing psalm.